in Acts chapter 4, the beginning section of this wonderful letter written by Luke that tells us about the beginning and the growth of the church that spread from uh, throughout the, the ancient Near East. But as we approach this book, we realize quickly that topics, the topic of power, the topic of authority and who's in charge um, is it's touched on. It's brought up. It's something you can't avoid. You know, we see it today as we deal with, uh, you know, that word called politics, which is a potty word these days. There seems to be an ongoing battle, you know, even within politics of who gets to call the shots in our lives of who, who gets the final word. And I tell you what, it's been like a roller coaster at time trying to follow that. But the issue of authority and power is not new to our era, to our generations. It is something that has been a struggle all the way, you could say, back to the garden, whose word is final, who is the influencing voice that steers the ship. The world has constantly struggled for who gets to carry the biggest stick, who is king of the hill, master of the playground. But there is a There's a more serious battle going on, one that we can easily forget about, and that's the battle for souls. While we're caught up in the vacuum of politics or even the vacuum of our own simple pursuits, getting what I want when I want it, we lose sight of what the most desperate need of humanity is. Humanity's greatest need is to be reconciled to the holy God. But we can also tend to forget that not only the greatest need, but we've been also equipped with the only effective weapon in this battle. And that's the gospel. Only God through the gospel can change hearts, can change minds. Now today as we look at Luke's account of the story of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin and and their arrest and the testimony they give, we see a struggle of authority. Here we see God's servants proclaim boldly who really is in charge and what really matters most. Now we'll just be looking at part of the story today. We'll be looking at when they're arrested in verses 1 through 12 and the testimony that Peter gives. But we see this struggle between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Now this story is helpful for us even in our current day because we live in a world that still hates Jesus. Still hates his people. Whether they want to admit it or not, they are enemies of God and therefore our enemies too. Because we are associated with Jesus. So they need the greatest news. They need the gospel that saves. And this section can bring us hope. Can bring, help us have courage as we consider how really our brothers in the Lord from a long time ago dealt with such opposition. Now, in Acts 1-8, we see kind of the theme, the purpose statement of the book of Acts, the marching orders that the king gives. He tells his apostles in Acts 1-8 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so throughout the book of Acts, we see that unfolded. 
We see how they begin witnessing, testifying to Jesus and what he has done in Jerusalem. And then it spreads. Interestingly, it's persecution that causes it to spread. And here in Acts 4, really 3 and 4, we get the first glimpse of persecution and how the disciples respond. Now this story is the story of the lame man being healed. Peter and John healing the lame man. It begins in chapter 3, so let's set the context to understand what in the world is going on. In Acts 3, we see that Peter and John are going up to the temple at the ninth hour, which would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Typically, around that time, it was a time of prayer. They were going up to the temple, and as they were going in, we see that there was a lame man, one who was disabled from birth, laying at the entrance. And so year after year, this man had been there, hoping, begging, hoping for money to be given to sustain him, to help him. Receiving alms is what it says. And as Peter and John enter the temple, they run across this man and they make eye contact and look at each other. And, and Peter would understand what the guy is asking for. And Peter says, listen, I don't have gold or silver or any fine riches, but what I do have, I give to you. And he says in Acts 3, 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk or rise up and walk. And guess what happened? The man rose up and walked. He was immediately, instantly healed, fully healed. It was without a doubt a miracle. And so you can imagine, put yourself in the shoes of the people at that time. You know, you're going into the temple, you see the man that's there all the time asking for money, and you walk past him, and here you are going about your business in the temple, and then all of a sudden, you see that guy who is laying there, jumping and skipping and rejoicing and praising God. I mean, think about the astonishment, the, the shock that would have been. You, you'd almost double take, like, wait, was that the guy that was over there? What, what, is, what is he doing here? How is he able to do that? And so we see that the crowd stir and draw near to him. And it draws a big crowd to Peter, John, and the lame, well, the once lame man. And then they're wondering, what's going on? And so now Peter takes this opportunity to preach to them. And his message was not one of Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He just wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you just trust in him, everything will be good. Just, you know, you can just add him. You don't have to necessarily give up anything. Just add him and your life will be taken care of. Well, that's not what Peter preaches. In fact, he, he comes to them or they come to him and he says, by the way, you want to know how this man is healed? Well, he was healed by the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent his servant, Jesus. And by the way, this Jesus, which they would have known who he was referring to, is the one that you crucified. You rejected him. You had him killed. That's a, a great way to start a sermon off. Probably a lot of altar calls there. A lot of people coming forward. You wicked people, you killed your own Messiah. But this Messiah that you killed, he goes on to say, God raised him from the dead. The righteous one, the holy one that you murdered, 
the author of life, you killed, but God raised him from the dead. And by the way, we are witnesses up to that to this author of life that you killed that's now raised from the dead. And this man that you see is healed by Jesus, the one who's been raised from the dead. The one who has been vindicated by the Father and esteemed as the true Messiah, the anointed one, the one who made the perfect, acceptable sacrifice of his own life so that you could be forgiven. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. And this is testimony, proof that he is still alive because Jesus is the one who healed this man. It's, you know, it wasn't Peter's power. Peter's saying it wasn't some magical incantation. It wasn't even by my own authority. It is by Jesus. Jesus is the source of this healing. And so, since God's raised him from the dead, and he has healed this man, you need to repent. Such a loving sermon, isn't it? You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins and trust in the one whom you killed. But he is such a merciful and gracious God that if you you repent, he will restore you and heal you and save you. Not hold a grudge against you. So Peter calls him to repent. And in fact, if they would, he, he tells them that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, that greater prophet, that greater David who would come and restore his people, who would reign over his people. And so as we end chapter 3, that's where we are. Peter has just been preaching to them, teaching them about Jesus and what Jesus has done, and that Jesus is the one responsible for healing this man. And we get to chapter 4. Now, throughout the story, and as we read, we're going to read chapter 4, I want you to pay attention to the word name. Name. It is used frequently, and it's when it's used, it's not necessarily just referring to, you know, that one specific person who's titled that name. It, it refers to someone who, uh, their character, their authority, their power, their qualities. So name carries a significant meaning. So let's read chapter 4, 1 through 12. Luke writes, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, then put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Aeneas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their, mind, in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's the point of this whole account. Jesus alone has the unstoppable authority and power to save. Jesus alone has the unstoppable authority and power to save. Now you can break this story up really into two sections. The first is verses 1 through 4, where we see that the opposition of the world cannot stop Jesus from saving people. And then in verses 5 through 12, we see that the church only grows by the name of Jesus. Now, remember, Luke is writing this account to tell how the church began and how it grew as the apostles were faithful to the Great Commission. Faithful to the commission even we see in Acts 1.8, to go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So our first point, 1 through 4, the opposition of the world cannot stop Jesus from saving people. We see in verse 1 that the religious leaders of the time came up to Peter and John. Well, who were they? They were the priests who were the overseers of the temple and its functions. Um, they were There was the guy we don't hear much about, but the captain of the temple whose job was to keep the peace. So you have this large gathering, enough that 5,000 people were saved, 5,000 men were saved, so... That's quite a stir. That would concern him. You have the Sadducees, who we've heard about them before. Typically, we think of them with the Pharisees as well. This was a group who only held to the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So, Genesis through Deuteronomy, called the Torah. And they denied the resurrection, which is really important, because think about how many times or that it was mentioned about the resurrection in this section. But they were the political power-seeking buddies of Rome. They were in it for their gain, what they can get out of it, how they can maintain their control, their rule, their riches. And so these leaders, these, these, this group of people, come to Peter and John and, and the crowd, and they were what? Greatly annoyed. Which is not... The happiest of dispositions, we'll say that. This means they were greatly disturbed, they were provoked, they were irritated. And you can imagine how irritated they'd be, because not long ago, weeks earlier, they had to deal with this guy named Jesus himself. And they're thinking, oh, he finally got rid of that guy, and then now, here they go again, have to deal with this Jesus again, through his people. So you can imagine the extent they went, went through to get rid of Jesus the first time, how provoked and irritated they were the second time now have to deal with his people. But they were annoyed, they are irritated because, Luke tells us two reasons. One, the apostles were teaching the people. And secondly, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Let's think about this first one. They were The apostles were teaching people this irritated the Sadducees, the group here, because their authority was being challenged. As the religious leaders of Israel, they were the ones who gave the right of who gets to teach, who gets to, you know, 
play this role in temple functions? Who gets to have this status as master teacher? And yet they see Peter and John, which they would go to describe in verse 13 as uneducated common men. These fishermen, they see them taking some role of authority in the temple to teach. How dare they? They're on the wrong turf. How dare they teach the people? That's not their job. That's not their role. They hadn't given their approval in that. Well, the second issue, let's think about that. They, Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Mark twelve eighteen tells us the Sadducees were the ones that denied the resurrection. So they had an issue with this core doctrine, that core teaching that Peter and John were proclaiming because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And yet Peter and John are proclaiming that Christ, by the way, who you hated and killed, he's alive. And he will raise his people up on the final day. That would have gone against the core beliefs of the Sadducees. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you challenge someone's core beliefs, it, sometimes it's not very pretty. So you can imagine, with the authority and control and hold they had over the people in the Temple Mount at this time, how upset they were. And so upset that they arrested them, verse 3, and they put them in custody until the next day. They didn't like their teaching. They didn't like the topic of their teaching. They didn't like the commotion. So what do you do? Well, you arrest them. Get them out of my sight. Take them away so they can't influence anybody else. I like how the, the NASB translates this well. It says they laid hands on them. You can imagine that kind of that rough, violent grabbing and pulling away. So we have our first act of persecution in Acts. Now, it is an interesting note. Why does he say they're there until the next day? Well, one, because it was already evening. This all started around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then a couple hours of this event taking place. It was getting late by that point, and so they were to convene the next day, typically. It is interesting if you stop and think about that. They didn't wait, though, when it came to Jesus' trial. They hated Christ so much that they convened over nighttime. Interesting what sinful man will do to get Christ out of the way. But in light of all this, verse 4 is this glimmer of hope. It says, But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000. This is a helpful little insight because if you think about how often the people of Israel, the crowds of Israel were swayed. You know, they were swayed when it called for the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, the same Jesus that days earlier they had called for to take the throne and drive out Rome and be their king. But then you get to Jesus' trial and they are persuaded by the religious leaders to crucify Jesus. And so you would think what would naturally happen is as the Sanhedrin and the captain of the temple guard came and they arrest Peter and John, that the people would have, oh, okay, don't want to stir the pot. Don't worry, our leaders got it. We're going to follow what they say because we're actually kind of afraid of them. 
You would have thought the crowd would have just dispersed and been done. And the story would be over. But that's not what Luke says. No matter how hard we'll see throughout the book of Acts, no matter how hard the world tries to stop the spread of the gospel, to stop Jesus from saving people, they cannot. No matter how hard the political leaders pressed or the religious leaders pressed, the gospel will not be stopped. And it still has not been stopped, will not be stopped, cannot be stopped. Which is fascinating if you read through church history. Often the darkest of hours, when persecution was the strongest, you would think the church would die out, is actually when it was growing. That even as people were being martyred, people were still repenting and trusting in Christ. The world cannot stop Jesus from saving people. So the opposition of the world, though strong, though intimidating, cannot trump our king. Jesus will save his people. And he is continuing to save his people until he returns. As we think about even just these first four verses and what Peter and John have gone through, are you willing to stand for the truth even when it costs you? Are you willing to stand for the truth of the gospel even when it costs you? We can, we can be faithful to the message, to proclaim the message, to testify even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpopular. Now, I know in asking that question, are you willing to stand for it? The right Christian answer is to say, yes, absolutely, I'll give anything. But ask yourself, is there any setting in your life where you are hesitant to bring up religious truth because you think there's going to be negative repercussions? Is there any setting in your life where you are afraid to bring up the gospel because there might be some repercussions that are less than pleasant? I mean, we just had Thanksgiving. That's the day. Not Christmas. I keep getting that mixed up. We just had Thanksgiving. And some of you probably spent time with extended family. And maybe some of that extended family are not believers. Some of them may be very hostile to the gospel. And so you get that anxiety, even thinking, do we have to go to the family gathering this year? Because you're afraid of what might come up. Or you feel like you have to walk on eggshells and not say anything that might bring up Jesus. Listen, we don't want to be rude. But at the same time, we want to be wise and continue to share with people. To be bold and have courage like Peter and John were. I mean, don't forget what the real war being fought is. I mean, yes, we live in a state, a physical state, that is, well, it might not be your favorite, and it might not be desirable, and it might appear, appear to be very dark and love the darkness, because it is. But we still need the light to shine in the darkest of areas. In areas where sin is indulged and celebrated, these people 
are going to hell if they don't trust in Christ. We need to shine the light of the gospel so that they will hear the truth. And we pray that God would open their eyes to repent and trust in Him. I mean, Peter and John just going to the temple and preaching there was like walking into the lion's den. The area where their Lord had just been tried and sent to be crucified. Yet, they went and they proclaimed with boldness. And we ought to as well. Like Peter and John who preached the truth where the truth had just been cast out weeks earlier. Where this was the spiritually darkest of places. Speak the truth about Jesus, even if you think that not everyone in the crowd likes him. And we can have confidence that the Lord works in these situations. And the good news is that the Lord is with us. So the opposition of the world cannot stop Jesus from saving people. Now, verse 5, point 2. The church only grows by the name of Jesus. We see it says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And then it lists some of the leaders who were there. This is the Sanhedrin gathered together fully. And Luke is pointing out that these were the main leaders. I mean, he, he gives names. So he's not just giving a general description of the Sanhedrin. He's letting you know, these are the big dogs. These are the guys that have sway, that can drift the Sanhedrin crowd wherever they want it to go. They have the authority here in Israel. These are the rulers who judge Jesus. Imagine being Peter and John standing there in front of them, knowing that this same group just condemned your Lord not too many weeks ago. First thought for me is that would be a scary situation to be in. So we have this guy named Aeneas. He was previously the high priest. He was the patriarch of the high priestly family at this time. And in fact, Jesus was brought to him first before the actual high priest, the actual man who was functioning as high priest. And then we have Caiaphas, who is the actual current high priest. And he was the one that led during Jesus's trial. We have this guy named John. We believe as part of the family of Aeneas would eventually replace Caiaphas. And then we have good old Alexander, who we really don't know much about, except we think he's part of the family too because he's listed here. But these were the ones who dictated religious life. They had the authority. Whatever they said led the direction for the rest of the nation. They were like, imagine standing before the Supreme Court and having to testify. Whatever they would say about Peter and John, or as we had seen Jesus, is what goes. And so we see automatically there's a clash of authority. You have this group of religious leaders, and you have Peter and John who healed this man in the name of Jesus. And we see a clash. And this is a moment where you would think Peter, the same Peter, by the way, that denied Jesus during Jesus' trial, you would think this would have been another occasion where Peter turned and ran. Where he just wanted would say anything he would to get out of the situation and go free. But what an amazing testimony to the work of God that we see Peter stand boldly here. And he testifies to Christ. 
that he has been changed by the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is working in him, that he would now, instead of denying Christ, would testify quite clearly, quite harshly at times, but boldly to these deniers. And so in verse 7, the council questions the men about the incident, and they ask them, you know, okay, by what power, by, by what name did you do this? Okay, remember the attitude. They're annoyed with them. And so, you know, they're asking them this question, by what name or what authority did you do this? And this is not a small side question. This is the main issue. This is the central issue to chapters 3 and 4. Whose authority, who gave you the right to do this? Because in reality, they had to recognize it was a supernatural power that healed this man. I mean, come on, you've got a disabled man from birth who has been there for many, many, many years, now jumping about, praising the Lord, even just standing. So it took some type of supernatural power. And the options are it's either from God or it's from the devil. Now, interestingly, when he when they asked this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? The pronoun you, the word you, is actually at the end of the sentence in the original text. And it's put there for a sense of emphasis. One writer said you could, you could think of it as they're asking it like this. What power or what authority gave this right to you? To you! You're the uneducated common men, fishermen. You're not from here. You're not from our, you know, religiously elite group. You didn't go to the Harvard of the Temple Mount. Who are you? We didn't tell you to do this. Why are you going about doing it? That's the attitude behind this question. Interestingly, in Luke 20, verse 2, we see this same type of question asked of Jesus. It says in verse 2 of Luke chapter 20, they asked Jesus, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? So this group challenged Jesus. And listen, if they challenged and afflicted Jesus, they will challenge and afflict Jesus' followers. The student ought not think he is greater than the master. But the, the, the leaders wanted to know, okay, who gave you the ability to do this? And when you, you step back and you read this whole story about what's going on and where we know Acts will take us to see the growth of the church, you know, you can't help but chuckle a little knowing that Peter has been just set up for the perfect opportunity to testify about Christ. And... Unlike what he did in denying Jesus, we see that he does do that. It says in verse 8, the P- Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he goes on what he says, He was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit gave him the words and the wisdom and the strength to know what to say, the, the boldness. Interestingly, in Luke 21, 12 through 15, Jesus speaks of a time as this. He says, but before all this, before the future turmoil would come, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Do you realize the opportunity that Peter had been placed into? Someone, after first service, brought this to my attention. You got this lame man who's been, from birth, disabled, out by the entrance of the temple for many, many years. How many times do you think Jesus walked past him? And didn't heal him. And yet, Peter and John come by and heal him. It was like God was setting up the perfect opportunity for Peter to stand before the Sanhedrin and testify that there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only source of authority and power to save. And Peter took that opportunity. It is amazing how God orchestrated all that. So the darkest of events turned into the greatest of victories. That the king who would come with humility will go through the darkest act and the most cruel form of torture and punishment to pay for your sins, and one day he will return in glory. And so Peter takes this opportunity not just to have preached to the common people, but to preach before the leaders and say, it is Christ alone that has healed this man. It is Christ alone that we are saved. Now, he addresses them respectfully. He calls them rulers and elders. Which makes us stop and think, do we, even though when we disagree with someone, do we, hand, do we treat them still respectfully? Talk to them honorably. Even if they're the worst of opposition to Christianity, how do we talk about them? How do we address them? I mean, we don't change our doctrine. But we can be above reproach in our conduct, in our demeanor, and still preach the truth. And this is what Peter says in verse 9. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So he says, okay, you've got me here before all of them, and you're questioning us like we've done something wrong. You know, we've done this good deed. Are you asking about this good deed? There's significance in the word he uses here for good deed. One writer says it refers to an act of beneficial service that normally was rewarded and well-received in the ancient world instead of being made the subject of judicial inquiry such as the apostles now face. Even the word he says, the way he uses it, indicates we all ought to be rejoicing for what God has done. So you're asking me about that? Why aren't you rejoicing? Well, it shows the darkness of their heart. What happened should have led them to recognize that Jesus is alive and that what he had said is true and they should repent and trust in him. Or at the very least, in the hardness of their heart, they should have recognized, 
hey, thank you for this good thing you did for the community. So now that there's no pressure on us to try to take care of this man. But their hearts are so hard, they're so blind that they're unwilling to even recognize any form of good. In fact, they want to redefine good. Good is whatever they think should be done that benefits them. So Peter answers their question. It was by the name of Jesus that this man was healed. Kind of like, got a problem with that? Well, they do. But he's saying it's by Jesus. Here's your answer. You want to know? I didn't do it. Jesus did it. Jesus is the one with the authority. Jesus is the one with the power. Jesus is the one who sent them. And his power and authority is greater than the Sanhedrin's. And Peter doesn't stop there. If that wasn't enough for them, he goes on to say, he accuses them. Hey, by the way, this Jesus, he's the one with the ordering power. He's the one that you crucified. This Members of the Sanhedrin, they were responsible for driving Jesus to the cross. They killed their own Messiah. But even in their darkest of acts, he says that God raised him from the dead. God vindicated Jesus. God exalted Jesus. Though he was brought to the lowest of humility and the perfect one who didn't deserve to die, giving his life and dying anyway, the Father has now exalted him as the glorious king that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And it is by Jesus this man was healed and is standing And even if you doubt the statement that God raised Jesus, it was to be clear to them that Jesus was was alive because look at this man who has been healed. It was a miracle. But it wasn't a miracle for miracle's sake. It was a miracle to verify, to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel message they now proclaimed about Christ. But Peter goes on and Verse 12 or verse 11, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, where he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The idea, there was something precious that you cast aside, something important that you cast aside. But by the way, that thing that was rejected has now been exalted and honored. And note, Peter actually personalizes the psalm to drive the point. It was you who did this. You did the rejecting. You did the humiliating of Christ. And now he refers to Christ as the cornerstone. Now a cornerstone in the ancient Near East was, uh, it was, you had many stones when you would come to build a project like a house or something and you would go through the stones and sort through which one was the right one, the perfect one for your, your structure. And you cast aside, you set aside, rejected all the others. And then another builder would come along and look through those pieces and find the one that, that they wanted. But he's referring to you, reflecting that Jesus is like the precious stone, the best stone, the perfect stone. In fact, the only stone that can hold what God is building, church, You threw it aside like it was worthless. You wanted to base your life, your hope, your gratification, your satisfaction, your eternity on something else. Whatever you thought was good. So you cast Jesus aside. But the Father has honored Christ. So the devil's biggest scheme to get Christ to the cross And the wicked man's scheme to get Christ to the cross has now fallen back on them. 
whether the world likes it or not, eternal life is set upon Jesus. So you either are planted securely on Him or you will be firmly crushed by Him when He comes in judgment. So don't believe the lie that it really, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know, all these different religions, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe what's right for you. You do you. Whatever makes you happy. In fact, you could just add Jesus a little to your life. You don't have to give up your ways. Just add him on. It'll be fine. That's not what Peter's preaching. It is Jesus in Jesus alone that our salvation is based on. It is Jesus in Jesus alone that we are to have as our greatest devotion and love of our life to pursue. One writer says that the major focus of this section is that God will exalt Jesus no matter what opposition arises. And so we hit verse 12. This is a great verse to memorize. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, building upon the truth that it is upon the name of Jesus alone, the person of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus, that it is all based on Him, that He delivers this foundational point. There's no one else that you can be saved. No one else can deliver you from the wrath of God. Interestingly, in the original text, the phrase, there is no one else, is actually at the beginning of the sentence, before the word salvation. So, there's salvation no one else. It's drawing the point. No one else is their salvation. Not even in your own attempts to find it, or to clean up your life, or to do good works. It is only in Jesus. Trust in Him alone. It's not Judaism It wasn't the temple practices. It wasn't the Jewish leaders' teachings. To this day, it's not Islam. It's not Hinduism. It's not the your best life now syncretism that Americans like to adopt. Take a little bit of that, a little bit of this. I'll make my own thing. It is Christ and Christ alone. And we can rest upon that. We are completely dependent upon Jesus to save us. Which is good because even when I fail to do well, I know that I'm secure in Christ. It brings me hope. And so the lame man's healing was to be a picture of Jesus' saving us. It was a physical healing pointing to a greater spiritual healing. Mankind is captive and in bondage to sin. Naturally, we are born that way. We are completely affected by it. As Isaiah writes, from the top of the head to the bottom of the foot, we are thoroughly infected by sin. And like the lame man was unable to deliver himself from his peril, from his condition, so too all of us are unable to deliver ourselves from the peril of sin, from spiritual death, from the greatest peril that stands against us, the wrath of God. On top of that, we are born naturally lawbreakers who love to pursue our own pleasures and desires even when God says, don't do it. We love to destroy ourselves by pursuing the disease of sin. But 
Don't miss what is happening here. As much as it is a miracle that the crippled man was healed, it is an even greater miracle that Jesus saved sinners. Jesus alone has the authority, the right to do that. Jesus alone has the ability to do that. He gives new life. He, he gives abundant life. He takes a corrupt person and makes them pure. He takes the blind and gives them new life. He gives them new sight. He takes hatred for God and he replaces it with love for God. He takes children of the devil and makes them children of God. As much as I want you to see that Jesus has the authority and power, I want you to understand the goodness of Jesus. He didn't have to do any of that. Think about the affliction uh, that he underwent in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked forward to the cup that was coming. He could have said, never mind. I've decided to not go to the cross. But instead, he was devoted to the will of the Father to drink the cup fully all the way to his death, brutal death at the cross, so that we would be forgiven. We can't save ourselves by trying to fix ourselves up. We can't save ourselves by trying to modify our behavior. It is only by Jesus alone. It is like the reformers declared solus Christus, Christ alone. And Peter makes it clear that it is in Jesus alone that you can be saved. Paul makes that clear in 1 Timothy 2.5 where he says there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James James Montgomery Boyce, the well-known pastor who has now gone to be with the Lord, wrote, The world thinks that it can stop a spiritual movement by threats, force, imprisonment, and death. But it cannot. It cannot. Jesus will save people. Jesus will build his church. And as hard as these religious authorities were trying to stop the spread of the name of Jesus, they could not. With all their threatenings, and and it would happen again a few chapters later, they could not stop it. It kept spreading. Wherever the name of Jesus goes, it works. It either hardens or it saves. But know this, only the name of Jesus delivers men and women from the peril of eternal death. Yes, the truth is exclusive. There is only one way, and it is through Jesus. Please don't buy into the lie of our times that you're, you're a good person, you're good enough, you, you can make it, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, do a few good things. Or that other religions have good things to learn from as well. You know, Mormons are right, Muslims are right, we're all right, all roads lead to God. Don't believe that lie. There is only one way, and it is through Jesus. Please, if you've not repented and trusted in Christ, You need to do so today. If you do not, you are gambling with your eternal soul. And it is not worth it. Sin is not worth it. 
If you have trusted in Christ, let this story encourage you that we have a great Savior that cannot be stopped. We have an amazing salvation that we have not deserved. We have an amazing King who has all the authority. And as we read this morning in 2 Samuel 7, who will reign from that throne. So rejoice and have courage. Your brothers in the Lord, many, many years ago, stood before this council that condemned Jesus. And they did it with boldness because of the work of God. The work of God in them by His Spirit. And that same Spirit lives in you if you're trusting in Jesus. So have courage to speak the truth, knowing that God is with you. We can trust in Jesus. And we submit to Him even in a world of chaos. But we know that Jesus has that unstoppable authority and power to save. And it'll be wonderful when he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word that we have, that we get to read of this account of the early apostles. And we praise you for the amazing work that you did by healing a disabled lame man. I bet it was fascinating to see. But what's even more fascinating is that you save us who trust in you. That you give us eternal hope. You give us life in your son. And we can be assured of that. We can rest at peace knowing there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, as we face a world that battles for our ear, our devotion, with authorities that seem to hate you, May we be faithful lights of the gospel, even in the most darkest of places. And I, I pray that we would see you save people, even in this, the finishing month of this year and the coming year, that we would see many come to Christ. So help us to be found faithful in that time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.